Welcome to From the Heart with Don Lister, she, her, Daniel Grimm, he, him, and today our guest, Jivana Heyman, who is author of a new book just coming out called Yoga Revolution. We are absolutely thrilled and delighted and excited about the conversation we're going to have around your book, which we've both read and both were inspired by and both really felt like it was an important book for the yoga community to be receiving at this time. So welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me, Dawn and Daniel. It's great to finally meet you both. Um, and thanks for reading the book. <laughs> oh, it's a pleasure to meet you as well. We've, we've kind of, you know, I think known each other online, haven't we, with various different things and commented on different different threads and no, you know, I know quite a few people that have done your accessible yoga training um, who have worked for us in the past or, you know, have brought some skills to our centre. So it's, it's really, really lovely to to be acquainted with you officially. <laughs> yeah, you too. And I mean, I love how out you are, actually. That's always been inspiring to me. I'm always looking for other, you know, queer teachers out there who are out about it. And so I appreciate what you post and share. Oh, thank you. Thank you. That means a lot. It, You know, it. It does take courage to put yourself out there, but you know, as I'm sure we'll talk about with this um, discussion today, you know, for me, the practice of yoga has given me the tools to understand myself, and then by understanding myself, I can help others through being out there in different ways. And you yeah. know, us LGBTQIA folk. Um, <laughs> need to be out there sometimes don't we <laughs> if we have the capacity yeah. and power to do it <laughs> yeah yeah well said thank you okay <laughs> so let's check in with how we are all doing today i know i'm feeling um i'm feeling a little bit like i'm in flow state which maybe we can talk about um in a bit um it's a rare occurrence doesn't happen very often um, so uh, I'm feeling quite chill. I'm enjoying um, the book. I'm enjoying all the work that I'm doing right now. There's a huge amount going on in uh, my professional life. Um, and so, yeah, but I've had a pretty bad COVID week. I've had my, I've still got blooming long COVID. Listeners will be going, we're sick of hearing about your menopause and your long COVID, but they are the facts of my life. Young uh, 20-some daughters, which drive me bonkers, long COVID and menopause. So there, that's my truth. But alongside all of that, there's a little bit of flow state going on. So that's pretty good, isn't it? Daniel, what have you been up to this week? <laughs> um, I've So I've done something slightly crazy. I was telling you about it earlier, Dawn, wasn't I? I've signed up to do the London Marathon. So um, <laughs> wow. I've, I've got a year to train. Um, so I've booked a half marathon just after Christmas. Um, I love running. But I've never really had a reason to run other than just to enjoy it. So I, I've decided to, I, I'm just exploring um, in terms of how I'm going to do the marathon in terms of the sponsorship. Um, but I'll be doing it for one of the LGBTQIA charities, um, just deciding which one sits best with me. And if I do a local one, which means I need to get in through the ballot, which is quite hard to do because one in 10 people get in. <laughs> um, but if I do it with them, it means there's no kind of overheads. So actually I can raise 
you know as little or as much as 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 possible um hopefully as much as possible for them but if you do it through a big organization there's quite a hefty amount that you have to agree to to raise and yeah i'm I'm wavering a little bit just questioning that but actually i'm going to do it one way or another (laughs) that's awesome wow i um i actually started bike riding a lot during covid i've been biking around here and then um actually what's happening today is there's a fire nearby i live in um near santa barbara california and or in santa barbara um and there's a fire just 15 miles away so there's smoke lots of smoke in the air so i don't think we don't have risk of fire coming this way necessarily but it's so smoky that they say you shouldn't exercise and so i'm really struggling with not being able to get out and bike um the last couple of days which has been a great um practice for me so I love that you're doing a marathon. Um, and I can also relate to you, Don, about the kids, because I have a 20-year-old and a 16-year-old, and they're very challenging. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. There are no words, are there? It's just, no, I mean, I think no they words. have such a hard time, bless them, in society now. Like, they're so, everything's on social media, and there's so much expectation, and their life never looks like an episode of the Kardashians, thank God, but you know what I mean. So, you know, they live in this perpetual state of like high anxiety and you kind of, as a parent, you always want, on the one hand, you want them to be happy and peaceful, but on the other hand, you kind of know they need this really difficult stuff to shape them a little bit. And I'm kind of constantly on the fence with trying to support them, but then just feeling completely overwhelmed by it. I kind of just quite often just disappear into my little she shed to get away from a lot of them. Uh-huh. Yeah, I mean, my kids both are really struggling, actually. You know, my daughter has some major mental health stuff going on, which I, I refer to briefly in the book. I try not to share too much about because it's her life, you know, and mm. it's her privacy, but it's had a huge impact on me. And so that's a lot of what I this challenges I shared about in the book, you know, relate mm-hmm. to that having kids and especially kids that are struggling um, mm-hmm. has just been such a, a big part of my journey. And mm-hmm. yeah, it's hard to, it's hard to express in words, like what that, how challenging it is, you know, mm-hmm. like kids just, I don't know. I had no idea what I was getting into. Let's put it that way. <laughs> I think it's just as well. If we knew we definitely wouldn't have done it. For I know. sure. I mean, I love babies. That's the problem. I like taking care of babies and I love animals and plants and like taking care of things, you know, but it's like at some point it's too hard when they're just like full grown adults. Yeah, I really, I really, yeah, no, I was just saying, I really relate. I mean, my, my eldest daughter, she's very open about her mental health. She is bipolar and she's Mm -hmm. been very, very ill for most of her life. And the challenge that that creates for you as a parent um feelings of deep inadequacy and blame and everything else that goes along yeah. with that uh it's just especially i mean maybe it's not fair to say especially but for me i felt like i should know better you know doing mm. what i do I, I didn't how did this happen and kind of having to navigate your own stuff around supporting them at the same time and then I saw a really helpful quote a couple of days ago and I was having a particularly difficult day because my energy was low and everybody was falling apart. And it said something about, you know, 
you have to accept that your kids are on their own path and forgive yourself yeah. and let themselves let them find their way you know and that is very much where I stand now because my kids are in their 20s I'm very much I walk beside them rather than try to navigate a path for them yeah um, I love that yeah. it's really it is really difficult though so it, it is it's quite difficult I mean that's a bit of what I shared about in the book you know like when I had um I basically had a breakdown like I had an anxiety attack and ended up in the hospital about now it's been I guess about four years but a lot of that was related to my kids and I couldn't I, I didn't really want to share that much that part in the book so much so I mean mm -hmm. I did talk about it briefly but um that was a big part of the pressures that I was under at that time mm -hmm. it was just mm -hmm. dealing with teenagers who were struggling mm -hmm. and it was just completely overwhelming yeah mm -hmm. yeah I'm sure we could have a whole podcast talking about just this that subject in particular um Yes. But I do feel like the positive that's come out of it is deep, deep empathy for others who are going through it. And I never judge a parent and I never judge anybody who's poorly because I just think I've been there. I know what that looks like. Hmm. I know what that feels like. All I, all I can feel for you is compassion. I'm not going to even go into the judgy place. Yeah. Not helpful. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It's totally changed my experience of the world, honestly. And um yeah parenting i mean i i don't know just the way we judge parents and um and kids as well i mean i think kids like you mentioned there's a lot of struggle for all kids but especially when they have mental health challenges and i i think um you know it's hard to be a kid you don't really have a lot of power you don't have a lot of control you know and yet you want to so there's this tension there um yeah, really, it just, it was a struggle as a parent for me. And I think as a gay parent too, there's just maybe, especially early on, I didn't really have a lot of support. It just felt like we were being judged extra hard. Um, mm. We had to be extra good at it. We had to like be the perfect mm. parents. Um, you know, we adopted our kids um, at birth through open adoption, but, um, you know, it's quite a while now. My son, like I said, is 20. So, you know, that was kind of before gay adoption was really talked about a lot. Um, and it was still unusual. I think hopefully it's not quite as unusual now, but um, mm -hmm. yeah, I kind of felt we stand, stood out quite a bit. Yeah, yeah. yeah well, I, I went through um, the process of adoption with my husband. And in the UK, I just found the process was so unsettling for me it, it was creating such a huge amount of anxiety and fear because I haven't been very well in my past and you know I've used alcohol and drugs to cover up <laughs> how badly I was dealing with my mental health and it just felt like I just felt it it, it just it felt so raw to go through that and to be judged on it, to work out if you're well enough to be a parent or not, which I completely understand you need to do. However, the anxiety of it stopped me from actually going through the process. And I was so, you know, I was so fortunate that my husband, it wasn't for us on the cards in the first place. And actually all it did was allowed us to actually understand our relationship in a much deeper way by going through that process. So we benefited hugely from it. 
Um, and on reflection, you know, the, the business that Dawn and I run is like my child now. <laughs> yeah, that's great. I mean, it's, it was quite stressful, the process here as well. And then um, I, one of the challenges I had is actually because I've been arrested a number of times because of my civil disobedience during the, um, my AIDS um, activist days. And they, that was a big obstacle for adoption because I had a record, basically a criminal record because of that. Um, so it just made it way more complicated. But um, but like I said, I think we were fine in the beginning. Like parenting young children was pretty easy. It's, and it, it takes a lot of physical energy, you know, just to keep up with them and not sleep and do all that stuff, caretaking. But the teenage years, I, I was not prepared for. And especially like with extra with extra challenges on top of it. You know, it just mm-hmm. kind of blew my mind, honestly. Um, which is, again, going back to the book, like I, I feel like the point, the reason I wrote this book is that I, I really had that moment where I just, like everything fell apart. And I realized, even though I've been doing yoga for so long and practicing, I mean, since I was, I don't know, in my early 20s, well, even as a child, I did yoga with my grandmother, but then I came back to it after college. And then, um, I just felt like something wasn't working. And so I really tried to start again, to like bring a new perspective to my own practice. I had to, I had to like start again. And I wanted to share that. And I I just made me reflect on the yoga teachings in general and the way that I perceive them um, now and how that's evolved, how my understanding of the teachings has evolved because of my personal challenges and because of what I see the world going through. Yeah, I, 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 you know, one of the things that really come across to me on, upon reading the book was I really loved the way that you looked at those really widely known texts, the Bhagavad Gita and the Yoga Sutras, but gave your perspective relating to how it related to you within your life. But then actually, I love the way that you kind of explained that the Yoga Sutras almost kind of gets us to look so inward but then it doesn't really give you an answer to what to do (laughs) once you've kind of had this revelation within yourself and 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 then the Bhagavad Gita is almost the the journey on from that point of actually you've had this realization then what do you do (laughs) how do you how do you affect or change the world how do you you know how do you how do you support your family better? How do you make social change? Yeah, no, it's well said. Actually, I think that the sutras are very much an internal focused practice. They are really. I feel like the sutras were created for a monastic, for a monk who is going to withdraw from the world, and and so it's kind of interesting to me that we use that as a primary text in yoga, when I would say. 99.9% of yoga practitioners are not monks that I, that I, I mean, I know a few monks in yoga, but I know hundreds, if not thousands of yoga teachers and practitioners who aren't, who are householders, you know, or living in the world. And yet we're following teachings that were basically designed for monks. And so I feel like there's something missing there, you know, and the Gita speaks to that so much more clearly about being in the world and service. I think service being the key element there. And, 
could just mention it in a few places. And I think you have to read into it a bit, which I've done. I've kind of, uh, I don't know, I wouldn't say I made things up, but I've given my own interpretation based on a lot of great scholars where I, I think there are many ways we can apply the sutras in our lives and the way we live in the world. But the, like you said, the Gita is a lot more applicable, I think. Mm, I, I remember actually when I studied, you know, both of those in the sort of teach training and then subsequently have gone back and studied them separately. Um, the, for me, there's always a kind of drawing more to the Bhagavad Gita because actually it felt like it was given an explanation <laughs> in yeah. some context um, to what yeah. to do. <laughs> yeah. And I, and I also, I guess I would just say that I'm not, um, I, I think the point for me of writing that book and sharing it was to share my journey and my experience, but also to encourage people to, to do the work of yoga, which is an inward work. I mean, it's inner spiritual work, but I think to make that connection to our lives is what I feel like has been lacking in contemporary yoga culture. There, and, and I don't think that's been lacking in the past. I actually think within the tradition of yoga, there's a lot more clarity around your role and how you live in the world and service. But I feel like the kind of um, Western commercial yoga scene is so inwardly focused that I think it's almost, um, to, to such an extreme that I actually think it almost is against the essential concept. Like, I feel like we're not moving towards the goal that is really yoga is for. It's not just about making yourself feel better. Do you know what I mean? Like, I feel like that becomes the primary goal. And I think there, there's something missing. There, there's something that we're missing there. Yeah. I, I just want to um, read the first paragraph of your introduction. Okay. I've got about 25 paragraphs underlined. Don't worry, I'm not going to read them all, but this one I definitely want to read because it kind of resonates with what you're saying. Um, it says, modern yoga is finally growing up and the time has come to address the dissonance between the superficial way yoga is currently being practiced and the depth of yoga's ancient universal spiritual teachings. Yoga offers so much more than fancy poses. At its core, yoga is a pathway to personal and community liberation. Although traditionally it was more inwardly focused, it offers enlightenment, true independence, but not in the limited way we've been trained to conceptualize it. And I think that really jumped out at me as a kind of, the way that Daniel and I certainly approach our practice is that it isn't about the shapes, it isn't about the form, it's about the inward transformation that then goes on to create the potential for, and you say in the next paragraph, service and social justice for all beings. There is no point to a practice if it's just about yourself, yeah. if it's just about navel gazing, if it's just about trying to achieve this word that is completely misunderstood, which is enlightenment. I mean, if we see what enlightenment truly means, it's seeing things as they are, clear, pure vision. So a deep understanding of the true nature of things, the true nature of reality. And if we see the true nature of reality and sit in our hands and do bugger all of about it, what does that say about us as human beings as yoga, and as yoga practitioners? Yeah, well said. I, I, I appreciate that. <laughs> Thanks for reading that. Yeah, I... Um... 
I think it's somehow ironic that we do that, that we focus so inwardly and we don't go to the next step. You know what I mean? We don't take that next step. I think what I say in the book is like the, the point of yoga isn't social justice. It's not that yoga is social justice. It's just that yoga is preparation for our service in the world. It's actually doing the inward work that prepares us to then be more effective when we're acting, to be more conscious, like you said, of the way we act when we're out in the world. And so I, I think we have to have a different intention with our practice, which is do your inner work. And that's fine. Like keep doing that. Keep doing the poses and all your meditation and breathing, but make sure that mm -hmm. it's just the beginning mm -hmm. of the next step, right? Like don't stop there. And I think that's what we've done is we just stop there. There's some interesting research. I think I mentioned in the book, um, you know, with mindfulness showing that people who are self-centered and then practice mindfulness end up being more self-centered. Mm. And I feel like that's an example. That's a good example of what's happening with yoga too. It's like whatever is already happening in your mind, if you just do asana and even some pranayama and meditation, but if it's not focused on service, if it's focused on you, like navel gazing, like you said, I think what's going to happen is the power that you gain, the energy you gain from it will just ex exaggerate what's already going on in your mind. And that's mm -hmm. not the point. The point of yoga is actually to change your perspective. And like you said, mm -hmm. see more clearly um, and seeing more clearly also means seeing your ego and yeah. how you're always, how the mind is always looking to get something mm -hmm. for yourself. Right. Mm -hmm. So to kind of see your selfishness, I think is really mm -hmm. the essence there. Yeah. I, I think it's really fascinating as well. You know, clearly we haven't got an awful lot of reference to how yoga was taught before it came to the West from many people um but I, I just find it fascinating that you know yoga has become a capitalist product <laughs> or manufactured product yeah. um which you know each of us are you know benefiting from in some way or another um but what i see happening a lot which i think you've touched upon very much is this idea of kind of using yoga as a way to confirm or kind of bring avoid the discomfort <laughs> but to actually sort of become this thing that is always going to make you happy or always going to make you feel in a certain way and in effectively this spiritual bypassing is actually a very dangerous thing for us to be promoting you know yeah. as as yoga teachers um and you know, I I I know. I was I was I was victim to that, but then I was also a teacher of that for a long time until I actually did my yoga therapy training, and it was like actually, you know, I really got pulled up on the language that I was using and the you know this thing about telling people what to experience rather than creating the space for them to be able to be able to express the experience that they are having. Oh, I love that. Yeah, that's really important point, actually, I think, for yoga teachers to hear that you just shared about. Um, and the, and that, whole, that whole thing you're sharing about how we've used yoga in many ways as a way to spiritual bypass, which is to avoid negative feelings, 
rather than actually experiencing them. And and it's reminding me of, you know, Brene Brown, who's that famous, yeah. you know, speaker. And what I think what's so great about her work is she talks about how we avoid intimacy. You know, our fear of intimacy, a fear of opening up and being vulnerable. Vulnerability, I think, is really her key, uh, you know, teaching. And I, I was just watching something of hers last night on YouTube, and it just was like, wow, that's it. You know, it's like vulnerability. Um, is what we're talking about. It's actually not, sometimes we're using yoga to create more protection um, of our pain. And that might be necessary at some point, but eventually our practice should actually be more revealing and help us to become vulnerable and actually feel not only our own suffering, but the suffering of others. And that's that's one of the, the parts of the Gita that I find most compelling and why I also drawn to that text so much is um, there's a part where Krishna explains that the highest level of enlightenment is when you feel other people's pain and pleasure as your own. Mm. And I, I just find that to be a, like a key teaching that I don't hear shared very much. This idea of enlightenment as being not just, I don't know what, like bliss. Like we have this idea of, oh, enlightenment means you're in bliss and isolation. There, that sometimes that word is even used as a definition of enlightenment is isolation or like separation from the world. But I think for, the, for Krishna to go on and say, well, actually it's when you feel the pain and pleasure of others as your own, it just blew my mind. Cause I was like, that, that felt more real to me. I was like, that's really what I'm afraid of, but I have a sense that's where I want to go myself. Is that when I'm most open with others, when I feel vulnerable and when I'm willing to feel the pain that other people are feeling, when I'm willing to listen, basically just listen to someone express themselves and what they're struggling with, that's when I feel the most connected. Mm. You know what I mean? That's really powerful um words thank you so much for sharing that and I, I couldn't agree more i often think we see um this great desire to be in an experience or many people have this to be in an experience where they don't experience suffering almost as if the whole point of their journey as a meditator or a practitioner is to get past the place where they feel pain but actual, actually being in a human body, having a human experience, pain and suffering is inevitable. Yeah. And what we hopefully develop, as you're suggesting here, is deeper compassion. And with that compassion comes the capacity for us to, to be alongside others as they're having their suffering, to open our heart and to not be too scared to, to look them in the eye. And we don't have to fix it. We don't have to solve the problem. We don't have to make it go away, but just to say, I hear you, I see you, you know, I'm walking this path with you. That's so, so important. And, you know, if we look at the great spiritual teachers, that wasn't the point of the practices and the teachings they gave. It wasn't for people to drop out of the human life into the spirit life. <laughs> the point was for them to live more fully with the experience they're having and to use their pain as an opportunity for transformation. Yeah, actually, what you said made me think that um, 
the way that we reduce our suffering is actually through that connection that you described. When we, when we hear other people share about their struggle, mm. it can relieve our suffering. Like there's something, mm. I don't know, like I, I know I used to run um, classes for people with HIV and AIDS for many, many years. And we did support groups, like as part of the class, we would meet for like half an hour first and just talk. And then we'd have a yoga class. And those groups, I was inspired by Dean Ornish and his work with people with heart disease because he, I worked for him for a while and I watched him do this. And what happened was just like that support group environment is so compelling. It's so transformative to be seen and heard by others, especially people who have a similar experience. It's, it's transformational because what our mind tends to do is we tend to go into this very... Um, like we become small and limit ourselves and get stuck in our mind and ego and think that we're the victim, we're the only ones. But then when you're sitting with others who are struggling too, and you're like, oh, wow, this is, you're, you're having the same experience as me. Like that just, just kind of expands your awareness to this incredible place. And, and in the process of doing so, I think it can really change your experience of that pain, of that suffering. There's nothing more painful than the feeling of separation and isolation. And I think, you know, we speak about in some of the texts, we speak about, you know, feeling separate from one, the oneness, you know, waking up from the dream of the illusion that we are separate beings, all of this stuff. Yeah, and exactly. in a similar, more human way, just that feeling of, oh, there's something wrong with me. I've not got it right. Or people are looking or people are judging or I'm in pain. And that just, it shuts you down. And that has a physical cost yeah. to you as a human being and then to you as a community and I guess I want to say that in our communities as yoga practitioners what your book offers for me is a real way to open this conversation is how is we as practitioners and as studios and as people who run retreats and workshops etc etc how can we be more open and more connected and in that way support each other and support our community yeah exactly I mean, I know from teaching for many years that the most benefit I gave to my students was building community. I mean, I, I know the yoga teachings had a, an effect on them too, but I think they benefited most just from coming together mm -hmm. and, and finding that the intimacy of, of community. And so I love what you said. I think, I, I think that isolation is incredibly destructive and um i mean i love to be alone i love i love my time and i i'm a very um i don't know what like i'm an introvert and i need that time but i also need to spend time connecting with others and and i feel like spiritual practice is about that like like you said i mean spiritual practice isn't i think that's what you're saying don is like, it's not that spiritual practice isn't about getting separate it's about feeling more connected seeing ourselves mm -hmm. in others feeling compassion and compassion is the word I keep coming back to It's like compassion is where you see yourself in others that's where we can transcend the limited mind the limited ego and find real healing and I think I think that's the whole point of spirituality um, is to transcend our limited sense of self like that idea of me mine and I and actually think about we and ours and the connection we share and I agree that yoga teachers and studio owners, that that's probably our most important job is mm -hmm. to make people feel connected and welcome. Mm 
I mean, which has been the theme of my work all along. I mean, accessible yoga is all about that too. It's like really about helping people understand that as a teacher, your job is to welcome your students and to make them feel seen and allow them to participate fully, no matter how they're doing or feeling in that day or what their ability is. Yeah. I, 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 was, just, I, was, I was just gonna ask you to maybe explain to people that might not know what accessible yoga is. Yeah. You know, what, what is it that you've created? Because it's, it's amazing. <laughs> and it would be lovely maybe for you to explain a little bit about, you know, the roots of it and where it came from and what really influenced you to, to want to start it. Yeah. Um, actually, I feel like both, I mean, this conversation, you've really helped me actually, because I think you've, you've gone directly to the heart of the, of it, of what I'm trying to do through accessible yoga and with this book, um, yoga revolution, which is around the, to me, the tension between the inner spiritual practices and our relationship with art, with others and with community building. I feel like that's really the, the theme in my work. And, you know, my AIDS activism, which, which is, you know, when I came out, I came out when I was 17 and I think it was like 1984 or something. And um, I think I'm older than you maybe, <laughs> but, uh, uh, you know, it was right in the middle of the AIDS epidemic and all my friends, all the people I was meeting were sick and dying and it was just devastating time. My best friend died of AIDS in 1995, which is the same year I finally, he convinced me to finally become a yoga teacher, um, even though I've been practicing for many years before that. And he's like, you need to do this, you know? So he, he got me on the road and then I, I graduated teacher training right before he died. And, um, you know, and that's, what I did, I decided I'm just going to focus on sharing yoga with people with HIV and AIDS. But, but it was just, it was a um, continuation of my activism. You know, I worked with ACT UP. We were marching and demonstrating and getting arrested and doing all kinds of wild stuff to bring attention to HIV and AIDS. But then through the yoga teaching I did, I was just focusing more on the community building aspect because I saw in activism actually that it, Activism really is community building in many ways. It's about getting groups of people to do things together. And so all the years I spent with ACT UP really was training for me, like incredible mentors that I had in those programs who taught me how to help groups make decisions, how groups um, work together, how to inspire people to connect with each other and to be active um, mm -hmm. and motivated. And so I, I saw that my passion for yoga could also you know, um, come together with my passion for community building. And so accessible yoga really grew out of that, just wanting to um, make people feel connected and feel part of something. And, and yoga was changing at that time, you know, in the 90s and studio culture was starting out and it was just really disturbing to me to see the way that westernized yoga was becoming so exclusive and physical fitness focused and ableist. I mean, it's just based on ableism, this idea that you're gonna become well and physically transformed through a practice that is not about that, a practice that's about um, spiritual connection. You know, So I was just very frustrated by what I was seeing and wanting to create something for myself too. You know, basically just wanting to feel like I belong somewhere. Mm -hmm. I don't know if that answers the question. But. Uh, Fantastic, thank you. Uh, it's, uh, it just it astounds me even today where we are in terms of people's 
narrow-minded misconception about what yoga is. And I, I personally find it really frustrating because I just think I don't know how many other ways we can keep saying and doing this, but the message seems to be taking a long time to get out and to filter out into the more public realms. Yeah. Um, and I, it, I, is I, it is changing. Yeah, it is changing. Yeah, it is. It is. And actually, you know, I think something actually that would be useful to talk about is, you know, you've created this amazing community and why don't we talk a bit about some of the amazing stuff that's happening out of that community? Because yeah. actually, I think it can be like me. I think you can get a bit kind of yeah. narrow-minded around actually just seeing the same images and, you know, the portrayal of yoga being being very westernised and very white and very, yeah. you know, we're very capitalist-led. And there is yeah. so many amazing projects going on all around the world. <laughs> you know? Yeah, I mean... And I didn't create it in a way. I mean, I named it. I think I'm a good, like I said, I'm a good organizer. Like I'm a community organizer and I like to talk a lot. And so I, li I like to speak and share it. But honestly, it's already, it was happening way before me. Like there's always been this tradition within yoga. I mean, really ancient yoga, you could also find this tradition of not only activism, but of community organizing that has been there for a long time. My friend Anjali Rao, is kind of an expert in that and looking at like who were the yoga activists in ancient times and it's quite compelling and amazing to look at that the bhakti yogis who really were about fighting the the system and taking it back and taking like saying an individual has the capacity to connect with god themselves rather than through a structure like there's really always been that theme i think within the yoga tradition but even contemporary practitioners were already out there doing it and I just, I like, I kind of named something and also I helped to organize people. And so we had the conference, um, Accessible Yoga Conference, it started in 2015. And there's one happening this weekend. I'm sure this will come out later, but they happen every year. We do um, online conferences now and we do monthly programs through the nonprofit. I also offer accessible yoga trainings through the training school, but there's so many other people doing similar work. And I, I think, I think the yoga world is changing. I think the it's true though that the mainstream culture hasn't quite caught on to that, but I think the yoga world has, and I see a very different conversation happening and it may be just the, maybe it's the people I'm listening to, but I feel like there's a very different conversation around cultural appropriation for one thing, really elevating the voices of um, South Asian teachers and practitioners, which is essential. Um, looking at what appropriation has done in the way that westernized yoga has been in a way like, I don't know, deformed through colonialism. Um, and then there's a consciousness around ableism. That is something I'm very interested in personally, like that mentioned already, the way that the physical focus of the practice is so exclusive, right? Mm -hmm. And keeps people away. The, the way that racism impacts yoga you know, and like, like you mentioned that it's always like white, generally white women that you see in ads and images in media, but I think that's starting to change. And um, that was another big influence on me in writing this book was that I was writing during Black Lives Matter, which is the largest civil rights movement in modern history. And just, you know, I've, I was so moved by it and amazed by what was happening and excited and I think that had an impact on the way that 
I was perceiving the yoga teachings and wanting to share about them. Um, anyway, I think all of the issues, all of the, all of the ways that white supremacy is, um, shows up in life. I think all those issues need to be addressed within the yoga culture. You know what I mean? So like fat phobia, um, ageism, um, you know, racism, like I mentioned, homophobia, transphobia, all those issues do appear within yoga, yoga culture as well, just because yoga culture is still contemporary culture. So we have to begin to see clearly all the ways that we're doing that, all the ways that we're being, um, yeah, all the ways that yoga has taken on that stuff, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. It makes so much sense. And you mentioned something in the book about um, starting to understand our own prejudices and, you know, speak about cleaning our own lens. You know, I think, I know I've had this conversation myself with many different yoga teachers, especially since the Black Lives Matter situation, you know, about how inherently we all do carry prejudices. It's like, it's innate within us. We can't help it. Um, and there's a feeling of almost when we have these conversations, if the finger is being pointed, and then we know that makes us feel uncomfortable. So then we don't want to talk about it. But actually, again, it, it, the practice surely is about seeing more clearly and trying to, you know, level the playing field so that anybody everywhere is welcome yeah. to practice in a way that that is going to enhance their life. Could could you speak a little bit around, you know, your yeah. viewpoint around that? I love that. Um, yeah, I think um, that's the thing. Like you said, that our mind is prejudiced. It is. Um, it's limited, it's based on culture, it's trained through language and selfishness. Um, that's all, you know, that's the nature of the mind. And I feel like to me, the heart of yoga is about transcending our limited mental conception of the world to have a more heart-centered understanding that to me, enlightenment is actually living from the heart rather mm -hmm. than the mind and or you could say it another way which is not rather than the mind but actually to integrate the experience of a heart focused you know vision of reality with a mental vision so like to me the spiritual and material worlds should be integrated and and i think that's the that's the work of yoga you, you know mm -hmm. to integrate those two things rather than separate them because on the heart level we don't have those that kind of prejudice right like mm -hmm. on the heart level we really can see others as ourself and mm -hmm. see ourselves in others but on the mind and the ego level we really cannot do that it's just not possible so it's so i think we need to heal that relationship within us within you know between our heart and our mind and so so that we can live that truth right that we want to feel like oh yeah i see everyone as myself i see the same self in others but but do i you know but do i and and so and another way i like to say it my, my teacher's teacher swami shivananda used to say um diversity seeing seeing unity and diversity is the goal of yoga i think i mentioned that in the book and i love the idea of unity and diversity which is to say that you see the oneness but you also acknowledge the difference mm -hmm. and that both are true. 
right? Uh, on spiritual level, we're the same, but on the worldly level, we're totally different and everyone's experience is totally unique. Mm-hmm. That's, that's, that's so true. Um, I mean, I think we, we all might approach our practice and I call, when I think about my practice, I don't think about what happens on my mat. That's not really such an important part of my practice. My practice is my engagement with other human beings as I walk through my day, how I interact, how I receive, how I hear, how I feel, how I treat each human being. That for me is more of my practice than the stuff that happens on the mat. The stuff that happens on the mat is just so that I don't seize up really pretty much. And so that I'm staying connected to my body because if we don't stay connected to our body, we start to, you know, become too much in our heads so th- th- those things yeah. come together but Thank you know you. if if we don't do that practice of engaging with others and putting ourselves in the other person's point of view we can only see things from our limited view and that really makes the world very narrow so, might, so i'm a really kind person but i do my best to make people feel comfortable but how do you because you haven't engaged in what the other person needs have you asked them have you investigated? Have you said what would make you feel more comfortable? You know, actually being proactive around the community in which we're living to make sure that our actions are not going to a disable them and b are going to engage them, so they can we can together develop um, a world that is kinder. In mindfulness practice, and that's my main practice. I would say I would agree with you. It's very dry, and there's a huge amount of misunderstanding around um, non-attachment and what that truly means and the way we practice in the school that I the tradition I've I've worked with for many years is that compassion has to balance off the mindfulness so they're like two wings of a plane and if they aren't in equal measure then they're going to crash and burn Mm. yeah I love that and I love what you're saying about your practice I think that's what's that's what yoga or any spiritual practice is for, is preparation for life so that you can be in the world in an open-hearted way mm-hmm. without, also without not, not only being open and willing to connect, but also understanding where you need to protect and where you need to have boundaries. Because I would say it's equally important that we're open and see people as ourselves. It's equally important that we also know how to care for ourselves and actually stop taking in all like the negativity that's out there there's a lot of there's a lot of pain that we isn't ours as well and so it's not some like i I don't want to sound naive and be like oh yeah just be open and love everyone as yourself because i think that's Mm -hmm. true but it's a dangerous message you know we also need to learn to what boundaries are to me I, i love the word boundary because it's like it's actually with a clean boundary, I can love you more. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? It's like, I actually, it actually allows me to protect myself only enough so that I can actually be authentically present for you and loving and available because I'm not taking in your stuff. I'm not like depending on you to make me happy or I'm not going to let you abuse me. Do you know what I mean? So I feel like a boundary is really like key here too. Um, yeah. If that, if that makes sense yeah as you were both just talking i was just thinking about you know the 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 amount of information that we get pushed from 
huge organizations you know through social media through netflix through you know the ways that we consume and entertain ourselves a lot of the time and i think it's fascinating the being able to step away from that and actually dissecting your thoughts around what's being pushed onto you because I, I, I've, I've just been, I was telling Dawn about this book that I was reading um, called The Transgender Issue um, mm. by a, a, a um, female writer called Sean Fay. And Sean has, is a trans woman and has took her time through lockdown to really kind of look at the stories that we're being fed about trans people and the hysteria and the fear that is being pushed yeah it's through general media and you know big entertainment shows and about actually trans people are people to be feared yeah. and them them becoming the the villain in 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 the in the story yeah. And actually, you know, she, she's written this book about actually, if you want to support trans people, you need to listen to our voice rather than being told by a cis person what trans people need, <laughs> you know. And, and, you know, if you want to start being active and move forwards in activism, this is actually the way that we need to be supported. And mm-hmm. I think it's, it's like a manifesto almost of support for trans people. And I just think... For something to come along like that now is just amazing because actually there's been a void for a long time about how how do we really help trans people because many of them have been so mistreated and are deeply traumatized traumatized because of the way that they have been treated that actually they're processing that themselves you know and it, I think it's such an amazing amazing book um, yeah. And I think it's really sort of hit the nail on the head about what we've been talking about is actually, you know, we, we need, we need the people that we're trying to support to be able to have that voice. It's so important. Uh, And we touched upon it. We interviewed Tracy Stanley a few weeks ago and we, we, we touched upon it with her around, you know, how important it is for black teachers to be able to, you know, say how they want to be heard and how, you know, Indigenous people need to be heard and how, you know, the work that you've been doing around cultural appropriation within yoga, you know, is so important because otherwise we're just, we're just keeping that story rolling in the way that we think it should be to support them rather than letting them, you know, have their, have the platform. Yeah. Well, I, what I try to share in the book a bit is like around that idea that if you have a marginalized identity, then you you can use the practices to continue to build yourself up. So your service can be inwardly focused just as much as you need to, you know what I mean? And then if you have more of a privileged identity and more and you're you have more power or you have you're closer to power, then your practice can move you more towards service and action to serve others. But it's like it's not, there's not one way that um, yoga appears in your life. And there's not one way that service appears. It's individual for each of us. And 
service, like I said, for, um, you know, for someone with a disability who has like very low energy and a lot of fatigue, like that, that practice can help them just get through the day and the service, their service could be to support their body so that they have the energy to care for themselves. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, for any of us who are struggling, it's like just to care for ourselves is the first part anyway, but um, I'm not saying in the book that we have to, like where I talk about social justice, it doesn't mean we all have to go out and be activists. Like you can actually care for yourself, care for your community, care for your family. That's where our service begins, right? At home, um, caring for ourselves, being loving and kind to those around us. And then maybe also have energy to then make a difference out in the world. If that, if that is, if that's where you, have the energy to do to go like if you have that potential then do that um but it's complex and i think it's hard to say that this is where i think we get stuck around social justice i'll say that with the intersection of yoga and social justice i think it's oversimplified in the way it's discussed which is to say that yoga is social justice i don't think that's really true and i think it's why some people have a reaction to it because yoga is, for so many of us is just an internal self-care practice Mm. Um, and that's fine you know that's totally mm. fine we have to we have to meet our needs where they are don't we we can't each person is different each person is have at a different point in their their life and their experience and that is in a constant state yeah. of change and that's one of the great things we learn in our practice isn't it you know whether that be on the mat or somewhere else that actually nothing's the same and we're only going to struggle and create more pain for ourselves and others if we try to fit ourselves into an idealized view of what our life is supposed to look like at any point. And really, the, the more we come to terms with the fact that we're in this constant state of flux, the more inner peace that we experience and the more acceptance we experience, the more resources we have. And you said, you know, sometimes the practice is about just looking after ourselves. When we were speaking about boundaries, I, I like to say boundaries aren't just for keeping things out, it's for keeping stuff in, you know, my little boundary. It's like inside here is my little nest where I do all the stuff that I need to do so that I can focus on being a good mom and a good person to myself and a good wife and a good friend. And then I only step outside of that little fence when there's enough energy left and there's something worth doing. You know, nothing's going to come across those boundaries. And that was a hard, a hard one tr truth to 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 have to um, to actualize, I guess. Yeah, I love that. I actually I think um, trauma informed or trauma conscious teaching is really about that. To me, it's really mm -hmm. about understanding boundaries and helping students as a teacher, at least helping students realize that they have power over their body and and their minds, hopefully and to give them that power within the context of the class, you know, of the yoga session. Um, I think trauma-informed teaching, sometimes we oversimplify it, you know, oh, it's about using this kind of terminology, but really it's about power sharing mm. and the power dynamics that happen within yoga. And I think um, there's been so much abuse within the yoga tradition that it's especially important because these teachings can be so easily used to, control people honestly i mean they're so powerful the teachings all, all spiritual teachings are so powerful and the people who hold them have an extra level of responsibility and extra high ethical 
standards that they need to meet. And that's not been the case, right? And power has corrupted many. I mean, just recently in the news, there's like so many yoga teachers that are coming out as, you know, contemporary teachers that are abusing students in some way or another. And it's just devastating to me. And I feel like it's just the opposite of the, it's the opposite of yoga. You know what I mean? It's like, we're supposed to be giving, sharing power with our students, showing them they have that control over their inner life, giving them tools to find more within themselves, more within themselves rather than take that away. Um, and I think that's how boundaries are for me too. It's like, as a teacher, I need to have clear boundaries so that I can share that space with my students in a safe way. Um, boundaries, for example, like that, I don't need anything from you. Like if you're my yoga student, I don't need anything from you. You're not, I'm not gonna look to you for anything. If you wanna, that's why I ask you to pay me. Like payment in money, I think is actually a healthy form of exchange because it's very clean and straightforward as opposed to like, um, you know, be my friend, say, say nice things to me and then hang out with me, do, you know, whatever, blah, blah, blah. It's like have clear boundaries with people so that you can keep them safe. My God, that's so, I, we, Daniel and I both so agree with you. In our studio, we have very clear from one of the things we set up as soon as we decided to open the space together was we pay everybody. <laughs> yeah. You know, there's none of this karma yoga crap thank you very much you know no if you work for us we pay you and we pay you a fair wage and then everything's clear you're not being taken advantage of there's no miscommunication and it just it felt so so important and it is heartbreaking to hear and I, I'm like you I'm hearing case after case of teacher that's being ex teachers that are being exposed for having taken advantage in so many different ways and it kind of can really shake you a little bit to your core, can it? Because these are the people you've looked up to and, you know, really lent on and sucked up the wisdom and felt nourished. And then you're like, oh, my God, and look at what you've done. I mean, I try to hold on to, okay, that's you that did it, the teachings themselves. I'm not going to, you know, the teachings are the teachings. You're a flawed human being. I can't expect you to be perfect. And I try so hard to sit in a place of, compassion for the victims of these people because it's just and on some level them also you know I mean nobody yeah. you know it's just, it's just it's awful it's, it's just heartbreaking how, how do you feel we can move past this and create a well, a better environment that is going I mean, to be safer I mean I honestly think that's part of this book it's for me is trying to just slightly shift the way we talk about yoga teachings because I think the way we're doing it, what it shows me is that the way we're teaching yoga is not working. If that many teachers are abusive, there's something wrong with yeah. contemporary teaching. Like it's yeah. not being taught correctly. I actually think that we've missed part of the teaching. We've left it out. Mm -hmm. And that's this piece. Well, like I, you hear it in trauma-informed teaching. You hear it in accessible yoga. You hear it in conversations around cultural appropriation or racism. You hear it in these places only, but I feel like this, needs, this is something that needs to come into yoga period, like everywhere, that yoga is about sharing power and giving people um, agency. You know, like my, my friend M. Camellia is an expert in that topic. I love listening to them talk about agency and power. That's what we're trying to do is actually give people agency over themselves and power 
through these teachings. You know, it might appear then that from that place, they become focused on service and community building and all those things that, that I've that I found in my life. But the first step is find your power through yoga. And I think it, it very much goes back to what you were saying about actually, if you were working as a collective rather than putting someone on a pedestal or someone being the oracle of all the answers, actually, you know, we learn so much from everybody rather than turning to one person or or one route to find that answer. Yeah. Yeah. And I say that in the book, actually, that I talk about the struggle I've had with my teacher. He, Swami Satchitananda, who I learned so much from, but was also abusive. And so I really have, for me, there's so much tension there that I struggle with every day between, you know, just feeling grateful to having experienced the teachings through him, but also so frustrated and angry about what happened and the way it was handled by him and all the people around him. Mm-hmm. And, and what I talk about is that there's value in the guru, in the guru disciple relationship. And I think traditionally it was kept alive because it worked in many ways. And one of the ways it works is that it helps you to release your ego focus because you focus on the guru. I think we mentioned this earlier, but when you can mm. focus on the community instead, mm. it can replace that. And I really do think that's, that there's potential there. Like, you know, the work of Theo Wildcraft in, in yeah. the UK, yeah. you know, the, um, <laughs> and her incredible um, post-lineage yoga, which people misunderstand mostly, but what she's really talking about is um, peer learning and peer support within yoga mm. tradition. You know, within contemporary yoga communities. And I think that's so interesting to me that the idea that we can be the gurus for each other, you know, Mm -hmm. and our communities can, the community can be the guru. And I think we need to really do that better actually. And I'm trying to, trying to give an example of that through accessible yoga, but I think um, there's a ways to go mostly. Tiktok Han spoke about, the next guru was the Sangha, you know, he said, and I just, I remember when I, I really, I mean, I was brought up in a cult. I then became part of Buddhist tradition, which as I later discovered was quite Mm -hmm. (laughs) culty. They're everywhere. Those darn cults. And, uh, and I kind of can smell them a mile off now. And so I've really always struggled with the idea of anyone being my guru rather than myself. Um, And I, and so I've never really, got this whole the guru is going to give me all the answers I kind of feel like the guru surely is just meant to be a vehicle for the truth you know that and that's why I've always said to my students through the years is don't stay with one teacher like please don't stay there go somewhere else try this other hear this other voice read this other book try another tradition go and do go and paint for six months do just do something else and then, you know, you've got time to think and feel and look at things from another point of view. Don't get attached to somebody's voice because that's just their ego event. Unless the person, I mean, let's be frank, most people speak through their own lens. You know, it's a, it's inevitable because we're all, you know, got our own stuff going on. We've all got our inherent prejudices and issues. Exactly. So that's why it's so important to kind of keep pushing people off elsewhere don't let them get too clingy yeah yeah i think it's a 
evolution of your practice is that you turn more to yourself and eventually find that within. I love what you said. The guru is within us. Um, the Satguru, you could say, or the guru principle mm. is really that part of us that already knows, you know, our intuition, mm. our inner wisdom, our heart is already there. It's just we need to find ways to hear that quiet voice that's usually drowned out from the mind. And mm. I would just say that to me, that's very much what yoga and meditation are for is to increase our sensitivity to the inner world and to hearing that you know the mm -hmm. voice of your heart for example yeah. to hear your inner wisdom that's you know always there always letting you know through various different signs and symbols you know it might be in the the tension you're feeling that the feeling of yeah. sadness or heaviness or the that feeling of frozenness or panic you know when we start to use our practice to notice like this is one of the things I, I always do in class and I know Daniel does as well what are you noticing today what have you brought with you what does that feel like how can we make that more safe you know what, what needs to happen now you know to give that power back to people so that they can actually you know make choices themselves about how to become more more empowered I guess around their own healing around their inner voice yeah, I mean, I, I just want to echo that. It, it, it's so important. The noticing itself is the key, actually, because what it is, it's, it's, a, it's a shift from an ego mind focused perspective to another perspective, which I would I often call like heart centered or you could call it um, God, whatever you want to call it, divine you know, like the example I often give and I ask my students is like, if you, you know, we have an inner dialogue, we hear that, like, we always are talking to ourselves, right? Like, you hear, are you talking to yourself in your mind? But what I often ask is who's listening? Mm, yeah. You know, who's hearing that yeah. dialogue? And it's very different to be talking to yourself than to be listening to yourself talking. And I think that the process of awareness, like you're saying, of noticing, mm -hmm. of being able to, oh, I'm listening to my inner voice. I'm listening to my mind talking. That's it. That's what it is that we're trying to do. It's not that you yeah. have to become quiet even. It's just that you yeah. have to become conscious that you're, you're also the listener. You're the yeah. consciousness. You're the awareness because that's a much more expansive place, right? That's, that's what we're trying to get to. Yeah, it's that's is that learning to not identify with the voice. It's like there is a voice, yeah. but beyond that, there's the the as you say, the listener. And the listener for me feels like a very expansive, peaceful, and deeply mm -hmm. compassionate place and boundless. This is the thing, it's also as boundless. Like the, the listener has no limits. It's like the listener is as wide as the sky, which is just an incredible, right? Incredible thought. But I, I also talk about um, failure in the book. And I want to say that what happens, I think, for some people, or for me, <laughs> I'll just say, is like when I, sometimes when I become the listener, when I step back and watch my mind, there's a critical voice that comes first. Sometimes I think that's an internalized voice of culture or parents or whatever. And I think that we have to be very careful about because it, it's not, you know, 
I think we have to be kind to ourselves and have compassion for ourselves too. So like if you're listening to your mind and you hear yourself saying something that's, you know, I don't know, you think is stupid or silly, rather than beat yourself up, what can you do? You know what I mean? Like, how can you have, give yourself a break? It's like, Mm -hmm. okay, I'm being funny today, you know, or okay, my mind is forgetful or whatever it is, rather than just go to this like very negative place. And to, Mm -hmm. and part of it for me is the acknowledgement that that is how my mind is like so the mind isn't bad either i guess is what i'm trying to say and and it's not yeah. like what we tend to speak in dichotomies we, we speak in black and white and i think there's always danger there that what yeah. we're trying to do is actually integrate mind and heart not kill the mind so the heart can be above it you know what i mean it's not we're not destroying yeah. the mind like yeah. meditation isn't like a lobotomy you know what i mean it's like it's actually about creating a, a, a healthy, loving relationship within mm. us. Yeah. Mm. Uh, I was just thinking, as you were saying that, I was just thinking our, abil- our, our ability to learn how to nurture ourselves in all situations is really, for me, what the, what the meditation part yeah. of my practice is, is, is really sort of becoming so clear with now is actually how can I be kind to myself in this really difficult situation that's going on in my mind or can be on going on in my body or can be going on in my relationship or can be going on outside my house or you know it's like how do I take care of myself because if I can do that then whatever happens I know I've got that tool to always fall back to but but that's it's so, I mean, I'm just, I guess I'm, I feel like I'm talking in circles of it, but it's like, it's not forgiving yourself, but also not always giving yourself a pass. Like it's, it's finding that balance, you know, of mm. being kind to yourself, but also learning and growing yeah. constantly and being yeah. humble enough to say, oh, wow, I really messed up. I can do better. Not I'm a terrible person. I hate myself now, but actually, oh, next time I will do it like this, you know, absolutely. learning from our mistakes. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Changing that dialogue within ourselves <laughs> yeah I, I mean, think I think, it, yeah sorry go on no go on I was, I was gonna say I think that's mental health honestly we talk about yeah. mental illness a lot and and you know I have a lot of that around me in my life and mm-hmm. I have anxiety myself but I would say what is mental health mm. what is that like and I think mm. yoga shows us to be honest yeah you're so right i mean that's the thing isn't it you know we we tend to think about you know people having poor mental health but we all have varying degrees of mental health which changes from time to time and can take dips and peaks and i think i really agree with that whole thing about you know we want to develop a healthy relationship with our mind because our mind's incredible like it's a beautiful thing mind creates poetry and art and enables us to get into our gardens and it motivates us to move and cook delicious food and have inspiring conversations and create change and my god you know cures for illnesses we could go on the mind is not our enemy it's our friend but sometimes because of the world we live in and how we've been brought up and various other things our mind can be quite tight and can be quite unkind to us so you know it's about developing I like to think of it as like a little inner conversation so I might have a voice that will come up and say, well, you're a rest of crap mother, aren't you? Look at your door. And, uh, yeah. She's going through all this and you could have done better. And then I'll be like, I'll rest my hand on my heart and I'll go, you know, just 
you're doing your best. Like, yeah, you maybe didn't do it all right. You maybe made some mistakes and that's true. And you can be better, I'm sure. But like right now, you're doing your best. Yeah. Or, you know, another thing might come up and I might say, well, is that really true? You know, is that a truth? What else could be true here? So it's about being able to have not only be aware that there is the inner voice and then there's the viewer, but also that we can have a healthy conversation with our inner voice because it's you know it's important we're we're in a human form yeah you know we're not going to sit on a rock and live in the viewer space forever right and that there's multiple truths that at the same time that it's not one or the other it's not it's and not but right it's and like i'm i'm anxious and i'm feeling okay like at the same time i can feel Mm -hmm. anxious and excited or anxious and um optimistic like it's possible to have both things true like i can be a good parent and have made mistakes both are true like it's not mm-hmm. it's not like perfection or failure mm-hmm. and so i like i say in the book failure as a practice because what i say is like just learn we learn from our mistakes if we're kind mm-hmm. enough to and not just like beat ourselves up but actually realize that's the point of life right we're here to learn mm-hmm. i'm really um I'm so inspired by our conversation. I said to Daniel when uh, we got ready to to join you, I said I want to do this in two parts. <laughs> There's so much to say, but I'm I'm aware that you know we've been talking for quite a long time, and you know yeah. I'm aware of your time, and perhaps we could just ask you. Well, firstly, hopefully you'll come back and talk again, perhaps in some more depth around your work and your book. Um, and also, you know, is there anything that you would like to share in particular about the book? You know, what's your, maybe your vision for what this book is going to do in, in the world? I appreciate that. I mean, it's been fun talking to you as well. You have great comments and questions, so I could talk to you forever. Um, <laughs> I, lo- I love talking about this stuff. And, you know, obviously that's why I wrote the book because it's on my mind all the time. And um yeah, I hope the book sparks a dialogue. I don't think the book is an answer. It's really a question and mm-hmm. a bunch of questions. In fact, I ha- I literally have questions sprinkled through the book because I want to know, like, what mm-hmm. do people think? Like, how does that work for you? I love mm-hmm. that. I love that. Was That was my favorite bit of the book was oh, actually, yeah. right, okay, let's deal with this bit now. Because I, I, I'm, I've, as I said earlier, I'm not a very kind of um academic person so I need someone to prompt me those questions they don't come naturally to me and I was like oh brilliant (laughs) I'm being asked them I need to stop here and reflect you know (laughs) know, that's the point right the point of the practice is to to you know grow and learn constantly it's never ending and I have so much to learn so I just to be honest when I when I was finishing the book, I was feeling very insecure because I just don't feel like it's finished. Like I really had a hard time Mm -hmm. stopping writing. I could have kept writing this book forever. And I, Mm -hmm. you know, luckily the publisher like gave me a deadline. I had to turn in a manuscript, but it's like, I told them like it's, and it was dangerous because as they let me edit, I just kept making tons and tons of changes and I could have kept going and going. And so I look back on it now and I think, oh, it's all right, but I could have changed it and done this better or that. You know what I mean? So it's just the way it's a process. And so I hope people see that. I hope that the book can be, um, yeah, the spark for conversations and um, just the beginning of a dialogue about this. I think it's, I mean, it's already happening, but just to encourage more dialogue um, Mm. on these topics, you know, what does it mean to be engaged in 
conscious spiritual practice and how does that how does that change our inner life and also the way we live in the world mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. i ask this question to everyone um jivna uh-huh. how do you take care of yourself well <laughs> <laughs> um, you know i feel very nurtured from my community to be honest i feel really um lucky like talking to you is very nurturing for me i mean it's i find these conversations really exciting and stimulating but um you know i'm very blessed that i have um you know my husband and i have been together 28 years we have a very stable relationship when I mean, we actually had a fight last night but you know what i mean it's <laughs> like it feels like i have a loving partner i have kids who drive me crazy but you know they're okay um i like to spend time by myself i love to garden and bike and you know obviously do yoga so i just spend i honestly what i do this is from when I, my kids are little everyone asks me like oh do you wake up and do yoga in the morning and it's like actually i don't because when my kids were little they used to wake up so early that they interfered with my practice so i started practicing in the afternoon you know like when they would nap or when they would be like be at school or something and that's still my routine so what i do is i um i get up really early and i work like for hours and then i take a couple hours in the afternoon and i go on a bike ride i do yoga meditation i do all my practices and it's usually a couple hours just for me mm-hmm. that time and i'm lucky that i have that capacity um yeah it's a good question though mm-hmm. Well, thank you so much for being our guest today. It's been just wonderful to to talk to you and hear this, you know, about the book that you've written and just the 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 power from that book that is going to encourage people to further question their practices of yoga and how yoga can really make change in our world. Um, and yeah, just a huge thank you for, for your time today. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's great talking to you both. Thank you, Dawn, for your questions and for being here and for being my co-host. It's always wonderful to be able to chat with you and do these sessions with you. Um, if you enjoyed our podcast today then please do um let us know you can let us know via the apple um store or the apple app sorry where you can get podcasts leave us a review if there's anyone you'd like us to interview or a subject you'd like us to talk about then please do let us know as well but until next time thank you so much thank you so much dawn and thank you for listening